This is Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Streaming nationwide on the 710 Sports app and 710sports.com. Now here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. The Seattle Seahawks certainly looked better on Saturday night in their preseason finale. They beat the Los Angeles Chargers 27-0. The Mariners... A little worse for wear over the weekend, and maybe a lot worse for wear. Let's start there. How much did the Mariners cost themselves? They lose three of four to a Royals team that has been playing better, but certainly was was led by the one-man gang of Salvador Perez, who knocked in 12 runs over the course of the weekend. And the Mariners were in each and every one of those games. They weren't blown out in any of them. And... That kind of makes it a tougher pill to swallow because you end up dropping three or four to the Royals on a weekend where the A's and Yankees are playing each other and split the series. Like you had some opportunity to make up some ground and you not only didn't do that, you lost ground. You only have a couple more series this year against teams that aren't that good. And you still got two more series coming up against Houston in nine games. You got Boston. You got Oakland a couple of times, too. You got to take advantage of the layups when you can, and maybe it's unfair to call Kansas City a complete layup, but you had to split that series. And it's bothersome in particular because New York and Oakland helped you out as best as they possibly could this weekend because they split that series. So no one's running away with it necessarily. They're both within striking distance, but unfortunately you find yourself slightly further away than you are than you were probably thinking you would be coming out of the weekend with. And it also feels like it snaps a bit of momentum. You know, they, they, they did really well on the road, and it's good, of course, that they won the last game of this series, but still, man, now you got Houston at home, and Houston owns you. You had an opportunity, right? Like, there was a lane that was opened up for you to make up ground, and you didn't take it, and now there's less time left in the race. You, 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 didn't, you didn't suffer some sort of stumble that drastically alters your odds of making the postseason, but you could have helped yourself this weekend. And it's not that there's no margin for error because you've got to catch multiple teams. Mm-hmm. It means that, yeah, you you need to take two or three against the Houston Astros who come to town who have had your number. Like It means, it means that you're going to have to beat better teams yeah. because it, you didn't make your layups. You didn't beat a team that, that you should on paper like you, that, that, is, that is more similarly that they're – you line up more favorably against a Royals team than you do against this Astros team that's the best hitting team in, in, in the American League. That, the Astros in Toronto, in, in my mind, have the best bats of anybody in the league. You, you, didn't, you didn't take advantage of this opportunity. So I'm not going to say, hey, they cost themselves any chance. No, but they made their road harder because they're not going to have as clear a lane and they're not going to have that kind of opponent, especially for the next three games. Now you've got to do it against Houston. They got to take two or three, maybe both yeah. of those series against Houston. I mean, that's that's sort of the realm that you're you're finding yourself in, and that means you're going to have to outscore them, and that's just something your offense doesn't do. I, I think you're pitching, well, maybe not with the last time that these two teams went up against each other, but I do think your pitching can, at the very least, relatively hold Houston to six, seven runs a night. That's the problem, though. You're a four run at best kind of team. On a regular basis. Yeah, that was the story of that series is not Seattle's pitching. The story of that series is Salvador Perez is awesome and Seattle couldn't score. Yeah. The story of that 
series is that Salvador Perez hit two grand slams and the Mariners left 40 guys on base over four games. Salvador Perez homered in every game in the series and the Mariners left 40 dudes on base, an average of 10 a game. That's the story of that series. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had 12 runs batted in in a series where you lost by two, by one, and by two. <laughs> so, I mean, he's the difference. And my goodness, he almost was the difference again yesterday. A single off the top of the wall. <laughs> the, the very, very close to giving the Royals a four-game sweep, which, which would be sky-is-falling territory. All right, let's switch gears. The Mariners play the Astros tonight. Uh, that game, first pitch is at 7-10 right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. They'll have two more games against the Astros, and then they'll go out on the road. That starts in Arizona, and then they're going to play Houston again. The Seahawks wrap up their preseason schedule. Their final cuts to a 53-man roster will be have, to, have to be made by tomorrow. Correct. How do you feel about where Seattle is right now? I feel Shaping better. up going in. A little better, right? I mean, that was a complete performance in the first two games they looked somewhat lethargic again part of that is the offense that you had out there it's backups what they are you really more expecting? starters right yeah like you, you had Gabe Jackson you had Damian Lewis out there you saw some Will Disley you saw still no Russell Wilson still no DK Metcalf still no Tyler Lockett but you saw some more they had more of their top line players that were available they did and and I felt that in certain spots you saw glimpses from players that I think are going to have to take a big step forward to make sure that this team is, I think, continuously progressing. Because for the most part, this is a team that largely, and there have been some additions like Gabe Jackson, Gerald Everett, Kerry Hyder, but largely has kept what it was last season intact. And I think that you need some young players with that in mind to actually start to deliver on the promise that we've seen not at all on the football field. I would say with Marquise Blair, and specifically him, you have seen a little bit of, of flair from him in the past, but not in, I think, long doses. And the same thing with Daryl Taylor. He hasn't played yet. Those two guys, Danny, are the ones that I'm coming out of this game and thinking that what they were doing in that game makes me feel like it is possible that the two of them could both be the kind of contributors for your defense going forward long-term and short-term that you're just going to need because you don't have enough of those playmakers on defense outside of the guys who have been doing it for a while. You like going in four linebackers? Their their final roster as it stands right now, unless they add a guy from outside, are you okay with four linebackers? Because I'm not sure if there's more than that that make it. You've got Bobby Wagner, Daryl Taylor, Jordan Brooks, and then Cody Barton. Do you think that Nick Ballore makes it as a I play every single position kind of guy. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, maybe he's there and you and you trust him enough to play backup linebacker. Are you good there? Are you good if it's those five guys? I think so. I, I would hope that you, well, I guess I'm not hoping, but I would assume that you're going to play less base defense, but the Seahawks do love to play base defense a lot, and that would potentially leave themselves vulnerable to being decimated by one injury. Okay, and then let's go from there and skip over to corner. Trey Brown, Pete Carroll said they're hoping that he's back. It wasn't a big deal that he had a sore knee last week. He didn't practice and he didn't play. Are you good at corner? Your corners right now are Akella Witherspoon and DJ Reed. Probably your starters with Trey Flowers and Trey Brown as the backups and then Ugo Amadi also factoring in there. Are you, are you good at corner or do you need uh, to add one? That's a big question. I, I would like to add one if I could. Whether that comes with a 
guy who's a last-minute roster cut, or that comes via a trade. And you know the one I've been saying a couple of times already this offseason, Stephon Gilmore. I don't know what's going on there. It probably would involve a contract extension of sorts, you would assume, but also you would assume that with the way that the CBA is structured that he would show up for Game 1 to get that first paycheck. Do you trust, after DJ Reed, any of these cornerbacks? I don't. You know that Trey Flowers has been out there before, right? So it's not like the the cupboard is completely bare. It's someone who is able to function in your defense but has been a weak spot, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's someone who's able to and understands, like you've seen what that is. And there are, you can, you can hold out some hope that he has some sort of breakthrough. But look, you, you've also seen the limits of what he can do, which is he's someone that when the ball is in the air struggles to make plays on the ball and is prone to penalties. Trey Brown is someone that you're hoping is 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 a good fit for this defense, even though he's a dramatically different body type than than you have right. generally featured at corner. And Akella Witherspoon is is the guy that you're you're sort of saying, hey, maybe a, a fresh environment for him, an opportunity, a, a new situation allows him to to tap into the potential and the reason that he was such a high draft pick. That he's he he's the kind of corner that we generally like. We would have liked to draft him. Now we'll see if it works out after it it didn't really it didn't really happen for him in San Francisco. Yeah, and uh, you know that's you got that out of DJ Reed in the exact sort of same circumstance, and and you're hoping sort of for a little bit of that with Kerry Hyder, but. It's a positional group that definitely has more questions than answers, and I, I think for anybody not named DJ Reed, and even with him a little bit, trust has to be earned. Right now, it's a completely blank slate that you're not expecting much more than the results you would get with a lottery ticket with any of these guys. And then the big uncertainty I think that most people are going to be watching for is Rashad Penny. I don't think there's much of a chance that he gets traded or cut, but I also think that Alex Collins is probably your number two back right now, given what you saw in the preseason. Alex Collins does have a thousand yard season in in his in his background. He's someone that has, I, I think in a heads up competition, you asked me who's who's been the better back so far this preseason. I think my answer is Alex Collins. Yeah, Collins looked awesome in this game. Uh, awesome. I, I, he was juking people. He was bouncing off of contact. There's one play he goes to the left and he reverses field and he was able to pick up a couple of yards on the other side of the field. He didn't get the first down, but he looks way better than just about everybody on the field that he was out with. And look, yes, he's going up against backups. Important to note that still, he, I think, showed a degree of confidence and I would just say more explosiveness than you saw out of Rashad Penny in this game. And Penny played well, too. I, I, I thought he, he's continuously slowly taking steps forward, but Collins looked like the guy that you saw out of, uh, that in, in 2017 in Baltimore who I thought was a really good running back. And if that's that guy... I mean, you got to give him some looks this coming season. This is a low key strength for this team. The running back, their their running back position group, it's it's better than it's been in a number of years. I think you I, I think you should feel better about that. DJ Dallas has looked really good in the preseason and is going to make an impression on special teams. You can say it. DJ Dallas, even though he didn't play on Saturday, like when Pete Carroll says he showed everything he need to sh- needed to show so far. Alex Collins has looked extremely, extremely competent. I do think that there's still some upside with Rashad Penny, even though I'm not expecting it. Then Chris Carson hasn't played a lick so far, which is about really exactly what you would want in the preseason. That's the one guy that you absolutely didn't need to Zero. see anything from in August. Right, but still, when you saw him in training camp, I mean, he looks like Chris Carson. So, yeah, you know what? That's a good point. Um, and who would have thought that? And Penny is Penny does have that explosiveness. Can he get to it in short volumes? 
that's what I wonder about. And it's still, though, a better spot than they were last year, even where depth was a problem for them. I mean, remember that weird stretch in the middle of the year where they didn't have either of them. It was it was ugly. And they need to be able to run the football to succeed under Pete Carroll. The one hint of of hope and optimism that came out of it and something that I had not I've not been expecting much from D. Eskridge, especially the first half of the season. Me neither He's was. been out for a significant chunk of the offseason in the first couple of weeks of training camp. He he practiced last week with the with the toe injury. He played. I thought he looked really good. I, I know that everybody liked the speed that he showed in the way on the end around because it was like, oh, Seattle's gonna get to do that too, something that we've seen the Rams be very effective with. I was blown away by his catch. The catch, if you go back oh, yeah. and look at that, it was it was tough, it was acrobatic, and he made, a, he made a really good grab in which you could tell all he was focused on was his hands getting to that ball. He caught it with his hands and didn't really care much about his body positioning or how he landed afterward. I thought it was really impressive. We didn't learn much about his ball skills as a wide yeah. receiver. We I think we assumed he's a burner, and he's got yeah. a running back background, so... Is he going to be the kind of guy that can go up there and make catches? That was a hell of a catch. You ain't kidding. The The question that I have always about guys from smaller schools, and I believe he's from Western Michigan. I know yes. it's one of the directional <laughs> Michigans, is when you're that much faster. If at Western Michigan and you're you're getting drafted in the second round as a wide receiver, you're faster than all the guys that are covering you. Like you're 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 flat out burner. Like you you are one of the most. What's it going to be like? when the guy you're cover- that's covering you is just as fast? Are you going to be able to make catches against guys that are just as quick, just as explosive, and maybe even more so? And that was the kind of play of like, you're like, no, that's a receiver catch. And that's something that somebody goes up like Doug Baldwin. That's the kind of catch that a guy like Doug Baldwin makes where, man, he just he catches anything that's near him. That's, that's one of the tricky things with, with wide receivers like this, especially as you mentioned in the smaller schools. I mean, Jerry Rice, coming from, what was it, Mississippi Valley State, mm-hmm. how, how were they to determine whether or not he actually had that kind of game speed that he had? But then you watch him in the games, and he, he was like playing at a completely different speed than he was running at. And that's my hope with Eskridge. And, and look, I'm, I know I'm making a lot out of that play on the end around on the right sideline, but just watch the way he runs on that play. I mean, it is very clear that he is not even close to going to top gear there. And I just want to see what happens when he's able to get to that level, especially against some of these players. He's definitely got speed, that is for sure, and it's great to see. And in addition to that, yeah, the guy can go up there and make a catch. It is Danny and Gallant. Our training camp coverage is brought to you by Precore Home Fitness. It is time for us to take you around the NFL. It's time to go around the NFL. The bottom line on the biggest stories in the NFL every morning at 9.15 with Danny and Gallant. Today's an exceptional day. Mora. Yo. What's going on? Uh, lots of stuff, actually. We, we got a lot in around the NFL. Uh, the first one is kind of almost more like an are you buying it than oh, okay. the NFL. Our favorite game. The 49ers continue to try to convince us that they may use both quarterbacks in-game this season. They did it for two series this weekend. GM John Lynch told KMBR Radio that they are looking forward to the amount of time opponents will have to put in preparing for each quarterback. And Shanahan said this post-game. Yeah, I mean, it is an option. So whether it's in their mind or not, um, I mean, that's that's up to them. But I mean, we got two guys who can play, and um, well, we've been doing it in practice a little bit. Wanted to do it out there in the game, and I think it's always going to be an option. Shenanigans, not buying it at all. If you're going to use the two quarterbacks, it means that you're putting 
Trey Lance out there as the Taysom Hill slash Wildcat quarterback, right? No, the only way that works is if you don't care how much that guy gets hit. Right? Yeah. That's the only way that works is if you don't care how much that guy gets hit. And that's not going to be the case. You traded up to get him. Absolutely not. And especially Kyle Shanahan saw what happened to Robert Griffin the third's career, right? Mm-hmm. Like he watched what happened because that guy got hit too much. As soon as you bring him in, it's going to change if you don't bring him in a red zone situation because the team is going to start to wonder. And that's when you start to compare and contrast and potentially split a locker room. But for now, Shanahan's messing with everybody, and I think it's hilarious. Yeah, I I, I don't blame him for doing it. No, I don't either. They're, the minute they play Trey Lance, they're going to have to turn the page from Jimmy G. Probably. Yeah, especially if he does well. Yeah. This was kind of a fun moment over the weekend. After Kymie Fairbarn was injured in pregame warm-ups for the Texans-Bucks game, safety Justin Reed, also the brother of the newly acquired Seahawk, John Reed, yes. um, is the emergency kicker for Houston, and he got his shot. He's a former soccer player, says he's been looking forward to this opportunity. He booted it 65 yards on the opening kickoff, and head coach David Culley said they would have let him try a field goal if they got within the 24-yard line, but they ended up just going for two on both of their chances there. But Justin Reed was really, really pumped about it. Here's him uh, after the game. Honestly, it's a dream come true. I wish I could have that last one back. I feel sick about it. Uh, but other than that, man, I've been wanting to do this my entire career. I tried to do it in college, never had the opportunity. So uh, getting the opportunity to do that today has been a dream, man. I've had a blast. Uh, me and the refs are having a great time on the field with it, so it's been a ton of fun. Who would be the best kicker on the Seahawks among the dudes that aren't kickers? Great question. You know you get what? To pick one dude. You know what? Alex Collins. Oh, I'm, you go Collins because I'm, of his. He's got some lacrosse. I posted his lacrosse highlights earlier. He seems like a natural athlete. He's doing the Irish uh, step dance stuff. So perhaps he has a little bit more control over his feetsies. How about you? I wanted to say DK Metcalf, except I watched him. I the watched him derby. play softball. Yeah, yeah, same. I think, I, think I'm, I think I'm out on that. Did anyone Will play Disley? soccer? Will Disley. I could see Will putting his toe into it. I could see. I could see Will. Yeah, I think I'm going to go Will Disley. If I had to bet on, if I had to pick one dude, because regardless, if he makes it, it'd be a great story. And if he doesn't, he'd be a good guy to rip. He'd be a good guy to mock. Random question for both of you guys that has to do with Fairbairn. Can you guess how many letters are in Kaimi Fairbairn's first name? Seven? Thirty. That is a No. Yes, it's it is a short, shortened version of a Hawaiian name. In total, his name full name is fifty-six letters long. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. It's I have no idea how the play by play guy, Mark Vandermeer of the Texans, is able to do it as well as he does, but it is a tongue twister. It is I will not even try to do it. 30-letter first name. The Huskies, uh, for a while, had a guy from Alaska who had a Polynesian last name. Um, and Neuheisel taught to pronounce it, taught me to pronounce it by singing it, like, Tu-e-e-le-fa-le-ula. There's a, <laughs> like a rhythm to it. Um, Tu-e-e-le-fa-le-ula. <laughs> but that's not 30 letters. That 30 letters, 30 letters would be, would be quite tough. If you were going to be a kicker, would you go barefoot? 
No. Like the Ow, that sounds Carlos. painful. I don't know how they did it. Like, how are you getting... I feel like the 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 actual shoe itself is is almost like having a little bit of a baseball bat or something like that. If you're doing a barefoot, that's going to hurt. You're going to like welts. I always loved it when the punter would take off, like the barefooted punter. Like there was something about the feeling of maybe he gets a little extra feel of skin to leather. Like it's for the good that you needed a little touch as a punter to put it in there. Yeah. The, the late Tom Dempsey and his uh, half foot hammer. Was that an advantage for him? I don't know. Maybe. Like, it's a weird thing to say that, but I think he had a block in his shoe, too. I mean, it sounds it sounds weird to say, like, he had an advantage because of you that. You are right. That, that is something that was asked about, uh, and then he responded to it saying, unfair? How about you try kicking a 63-yard field goal to win it with two seconds left, and you're wearing a square shoe? Oh, yeah, and no toes either. <laughs> I'd be mad about that, too. Fair, fair point, Tom. Fair point. <laughs> Cardinals safety Buda Baker joined Rich Eisen last week, and he was asked which quarterback is the toughest to prepare for. He didn't have to give it very much thought. Oh, I mean, I don't even have to think about that. For me, it's Russell Wilson going against him twice a year. It's just a guy who, you know, they're offensive players. They run their route, and you might, you know, lock onto their route, and then once it, once Russell gets out the pocket, it's kind of like flyers up. You know, those receivers start running everywhere left and right and up and down, back down, and Russell just throws pinpoint accuracy ball every time to whatever receiver he's he's going to. So that's definitely hard. And also his, you know, um, running ability. He, you know, he doesn't have a lot of turnovers. He takes care of the ball. And I would definitely say Russell Wilson. I thought for sure that he was going to – Say Kyler Murray and Pander. Oh, to Pander to his teammate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good answer. Very I detailed, love Buda, man. I, I'll still always be a little salty that the Seahawks didn't draft him. Yeah, I don't blame you. He's he's a yeah. he's a top. Would have been a great fit here, man. Buda, yep. Buda Baker's Buda Baker's a fun player to watch. He that is guy's all over the field. That play where he got that interception and DK Metcalf tracked him down. The play that he made on that ball was a yes. really good play. And, I mean, it's very few safeties that I think are capable of making a difference quite like that. And that's, I guess, a difference between he and and, and safeties like Jamal Adams. Look, that's on Russ. Russ thought he had it and just could lob it there. But that was incredible recognition by by Budik, who put his foot in the ground and just went. Yep. And that... That play, that was not his responsibility, and he he saw it, and he he, he put his foot in the ground, and he went. Um, Russell should have put a little more zip on the ball, but he he thought it was just a busted coverage, and it was open. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then DK ran him down. That was something else. That was a fun game, even though they lost. It was. I know. That is around the NFL. Our training camp coverage again brought to you by Precore Home Fitness. The Mariners let some opportunities slip through their fingers. What did it tell us about this team? We'll explain next. You are listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. The reason why I have a hard time believing in Clutch was on display over the weekend with the Mariners. Last week, all the conversations that come back haven't won six of eight on the road trip. That included a couple of game-tying home runs by Ty France in the ninth inning. All of the conversation is how clutch these Mariners are. So what happened? Did the clutch shift out over the weekend? 
What happened to the clutch? Where, where exactly did all of that go? If, if of all of the people who tell me clutch is real, did they stop being clutch? Did they, did they slack off? What exactly happened over this weekend in which they left 40 dudes on base? Well, Salvador Perez, Danny, was just more clutch. Yeah, no, look, that's true. He was on fire. He hits four home runs, seven for 17, and drives in 12 runs. You, your team scored 17 runs, the Mariners did. That included several bases loaded walks, and Salvador Perez drove in 12 all on his lonesome. Yeah, um, you can't hit in, in big spots on a regular basis. I think this has been just the, the theme throughout the year. So maybe they're clutch when it comes to pitching, although Paul Seawald wasn't exactly able to be as clutch as he needed to be in a spot where Scott Service trusted him. Now, let me provide an alternate, an alternate uh, explanation, which is that in most instances – Pitchers and hitters are trying as hard as they possibly can. And that the difficulty of getting a hit, it it's pretty universally hard. There are some times where there's more pressure than others, but it's generally pretty. And if you're a hitter, you can't concentrate your hits when they matter most. That you're not more likely or less likely to get a base hit depending on the situation of whether or not you're you're focused on runners in scoring position and like I've really got to bear down. That 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 idea of clutch is it's a it's a mistake that we make. We 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 observe a result. Player drives in a run, two runs with two outs with a single and and we we determine a cause. He's clutch, which it isn't actually clutch. It's just that hey, in this instance, he was able, the 30% of the time that a hitter or the 25% of the time that this given hitter gets a hit, it happened so t- that in this case, it happened with two runners on base and with two outs, as opposed to he really geared up for this opportunity. Because if you're telling me clutch does exist, then this weekend would have to be characterized as a choke for the Mariners. And I don't think it was a choke. Well, I mean, Friday kind of was. I mean, they're up 5-1. I know that it's one swing of the bat that finished the job of that comeback of, of making it a tie game. But, I mean, they had a lead, and they were holding on to the lead late, too. And Yep. That one, I, I do think they kind of puked it away. As far as the other ones, is a little... Well, shoot, I mean, they puked it away on Thursday, too. They, they had leads in both of those games. So you think that when they choked, the pressure got too much for them? And they just collapsed because everything that the, the the mental strain of having to hold, they lost their focus. I don't think it's due to that. I but I just do think that they collapsed, and I don't know. If Maybe it was, was because cause. the best hitting catcher, who's having one of the best power seasons in American League history for anyone at his position, happened happened to clobber a couple of of really significant home runs. A guy that has thirty eight of them came to the plate in significant moments and succeeded because he's a really good hitter. Then don't pitch to him. I mean, that's a fair, that's a fair point. And that, and that's about strategy, but that's about strategy and not about my issue is, is that we observe results. Ty France hits game tying home runs in back to back games and then describe a cause and say, it's because he's clutch. It's because this Mariners team is clutch. And in fact, Scott service deserves credit for how clutch these Mariners are. And then does that just go away? Does that just evaporate? Because if that's the case, we probably need to eliminate all coaching. And coaching doesn't matter nearly as much and get psychologists in there. Just all sports psychologists. And that's it, your hitting coach doesn't matter nearly as much as developing clutchness. 
Because that's what you really need. If you can if you can pinpoint that moment in which you're able to channel all of your focus and when the stakes are highest, that's when you perform your best. If that is a possible achievable phenomenon, forget all of the technique, forget all of the coaching, and let's just get some psychologists in there because that's what's really important. There is a sports psychologist in Ted Lasso, and even she's not the one that's getting them to get back on track or something like that. Yeah, I am with you in that. The idea of it being clutch or a lack thereof, as far as the reason as they blew it this weekend, that's that's not the reason. I, I, I really would simply go back to what I just said a moment ago. Why are you pitching to Salvador Perez? In fact, you don't do it with the bases loaded, but there's a part of me that wishes that they had actually walked in Salvador Well, of Perez, course, because right? you saw what the result was. Yeah. Like you, but you don't get to determine that before. The, the only person you should walk with the bases loaded is steroid Barry Bonds. Yeah, like That's true. the only person. That's the only person you can statistic. And even then, I think that's cowardly to the point where I think that has that. I, I don't like the message that sense. I don't like the message that sends to intentionally walk a run in. I don't like it either, but at the same time, I mean, he's by far their best hitter, and I guess that there are some other guys there, but once you get through Salvador Perez, aren't you getting to the lesser part of the Royals lineup and to guys after the fact who you're not expecting to be able to deliver in that way? Again, it's crazy to walk the bases with the bases loaded. But there were a couple of moments in this weekend series where I'm just wondering, okay, why are you still challenging this guy? What do you, you think is going to change? What's well, different? that was certainly the case in the eighth inning. And even Scott Service said it afterward when it, it was a matter of how many feet do you think separated that from being a home run? Is it 10 feet? Probably wasn't even 10 it feet. Was it was probably close. like, yeah, like five or six with, feet. Yeah, within he a human a, body length. If, if he hits it a little bit farther, it, it, and he, he might have thought that he hit it out. Because his reaction, and here was Scott Service, because before Salvador Perez came to the plate as the tying run in the eighth inning, uh, Scott Service went out to talk to his pitcher, Paul Seawald, about exactly what was going to go on. I will never forget that mound visit for as long as I uh, uh, manage the game. Uh, certainly, it's the hottest hitter on the planet. Uh, the last four days and, and you go out there and you know with the guy getting on in front of him uh you know i wanted to make sure we executed pitches and uh paul assured me that he was not going to throw him anything he could hit uh unfortunately we did not execute um and we were actually very fortunate that the ball did hit the wall <laughs> it feels personal too when he's saying like oh, i don't know why paul did that yeah yeah, I don't know why Paul Seawald did that. I have no idea why he – Why? I mean, he just made a mistake, right? Yeah, like he, he made, just a mistake, made a mistake. But he's he's your most trustworthy reliever, and, and you're hoping that he, of all the people in your bullpen, is the one that's not going to make it. So that's, I imagine, very frustrating for Scott's service. Do you think in, in Paul Seawald's mind when that pitch left his hand he knew it? Probably. Or was it when the bat cracked – like what at some point, like I'm always curious to know when that moment of realization is where it's just when did that uh oh moment happen? Uh, it's got to be as soon as you release it. If you if you know you don't have the location, there, there's... you're like, oh, no, that's in the danger zone. And then you hear the crack and then begins the bargaining. on like, come on, come on, come on, knock it down. Come on, knock it down. Just that anxious moment. And you know that you've just done exactly what your manager told you you absolutely can't do. Like, that's got to be such a whirlwind of emotions on the mound. And you're trying to remain stoic because baseball players always try to remain stoic. I know. And they're trying to, like, oh, that had to be excruciating. Oh, yeah. I would. I feel like I would be, at the very least, entertaining to watch as I gave up countless home runs if I were on the mound because I would have very, very interesting facial reactions in addition to, yeah, what you're laying out there. It is weird that they all remain so stoic. Like, do they have to? I mean, why can't you just drop a, a, a hearty cuss or or say Frank well, Furter? Some, 
certainly sometimes you do see a pitcher when he knows that he's get, gotten blasted. But their- when you're when you're in that moment, yeah, they cover their mouths. But when you're in that moment when you're not sure. You're not sure that you're dust. You don't want to freak out yet because it might come out okay. And then you can be like, oh, yeah, I had it all the time. Just a loud out. Like, yeah, no, n- nothing to worry about there. But, yeah, that was, that, 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 was, that was a tough one. It is Danny and Gallant. We'll be back to raise flags. That's coming up next. From the pocket and flags everywhere. Flag on the play. Now there's a flag down. Every morning at 945 with Danny and Gallant. Brought to you by Carter Volkswagen. If the noise persists, the defense will be charged with a timeout. Flag on the play. It is that time where we put everything in perspective or bring your attention to some sort of travesty or comical relief that occurred through the world of sports. Now... It's going to be hard on a day like this for me not to raise a flag at at Jake Paul, who just tricked the entire world into paying for another one of his fights. I'm not talking about the 60 bucks last night. I'm talking about whatever I'm going to fork over the next time I want to see him get knocked out. Because, yeah, I'm an idiot and I deserve to be robbed. But still, it's kind of beside the point. But instead of that, I'm throwing a flag on ESPN. Oh. Oh. Over this weekend, ESPN aired a number of high school football games. One of those games featured a school called Bishop Sycamore. I do not believe there was anyone named Sycamore, let alone a bishop. So it's a strange name for a school. And I say that as a Catholic, someone who's raised Catholic. Um, but the real issue here, they, they played IMG Academy, which I, I don't know how to characterize that other than a vehicle for athletic development. Like it, it's essentially... Uh, it's it's preparing kids to get college scholarships. I saw someone I word it th- as a finishing school for athletes. Right. Yeah, that's that's essentially what it is. Because I don't even think they can play. Like They're located in Florida. I don't think they can play for any of the Florida State Championships or anything. Like I, I don't think they're accredited school through, through the state of Florida. But the issue here, Bishop Sycamore on the field clearly had no business being out there with IMG Academy. They... They played last year in October, and IMG Academy won fifty-six to six. This year, they won fifty-eight to zero. I do want to. I do want to give like a tip of the cap to the actual play-by-play, the commentating team, because An- Anish Shroff, who's the voice we'll hear, and Tom Luganbill made it pretty clear in the first half that what was going on here was was ridiculous. Here, here's their description of what the play, the, what the disparity that they saw on the field in front of them. Bishop Sycamore told us they had a number of Division I prospects on their roster. To be frank, a lot of that we could not verify. And they did not show up in our database. They did not show up in the databases of other recruiting services. So it's okay. If that's what you're telling us, fine. That's how we take it in. From what we've seen so far, this is not a fair fight. And and there's got to be a point now, Luke, where you do worry about health and safety. So that is Anish then referring to Tom Luganbill. They did the best to point out what was going on. The reason the flag's on ESPN is you, you, you are programming. You are creating programming by giving money to high schools. Bishop Sycamore is an online charter school. It's unclear if they played football prior to last season. They were 0-6 last season. They scored 47 points and gave up 226. That is a play. And then they played on Friday night. They played on Friday night in Pennsylvania and then played on Sunday. That's crazy. In in Ohio against IMG Academy. That's the and thing the, I have the biggest issue with. 
what? Why are they doing that? Because ESPN, I'm sure, is is paying them for the appearance, right? I bet IMG Academy or giving paid them, them the, too. Uh, the, the whole thing, like that's rotten. You are you are fun. and at that point, if you're ESPN, you are funding. You you are part of the problem of pumping money or attention into something that is that that bears no resemblance to actual high school football. Like it's gross. The whole thing and. And the fact that ESPN should have some explaining to do of how they came to televise that. How did you yeah. put that between a school whose existence is questionable? I, like Somebody said they looked up the mailing address and it's a parking lot? Like, it's a, is it an actual school building? It's not. Like, what is it? And somebody was like, oh, and this, this made-for-athletics school facing IMG Academy. And I was like, well, what is IMG Academy? Is that not a made for school? And that's what that's what ESPN's going to put on. That's gross. How many great high schools are there across the country that you know are borderline national brand names all over the place? And also, I hate that IMG Academy's there. That's not a real high school. I hate them. Uh, they are from the area of the country where I went to high school. It's surprising. I mean, you can't get Hoover from Alabama. Remember them from the uh, from that uh, high school TV show on MTV back in the day? There's De La Salle in California. I know there's a ton of programs around here. Yeah, bizarre that this is the one that they looked at and they did no due diligence into, you know, a background check. If that's the if that's the kind of game you're going to put on television, you shouldn't televise high school football because that's not high school football and it shouldn't be the direction that high school football goes. It's gross. Mora. Guys, I'm, I'm kind of shaken up right now because uh, I think I think Colin Cowherd has me ready to defend Tim Tebow. Oh, what? Jake Paul is far more legitimate than Tim Tebow trying out for the Jaguars at tight end. He was a blocking tight end who couldn't block. Jake Paul's a fighter who can punch. <laughs> at least Tim Tebow is an NFL. He's a former NFL player trying to make a comeback. He's playing with other NFL players. I don't even know much about this, but Danny, you've talked about it enough. Jake Paul is not fighting real boxers, correct? No, he, like he's, he's fighting fight- like former MMA fighters. Who are not known for their... The first guy he fought couldn't punch. And then this guy is not known for his boxing. Tyron Woodley is a is a, is a wrestler. And who has a big overhand, right? And does is not very active. He's lost his last five fights. So he's he hasn't won in three years in the thing he's supposed to be good at in MMA. And, and, he, and he lost a decision last night to, to Jake Paul. He, yeah, Tebow actually at least put himself out there with guys that he knew were probably going to be better than him. And I, yeah, that to me, that's more legitimate than what Jake Paul is doing. Fair point, Mora. However, I would pay to watch Jake Paul box. I would not pay to watch Tim Tebow block. <laughs> would you pay to there. watch <laughs> Tebow play baseball? Well, that's what I was. It that is probably the actual comparison. Yeah, I I, I think Jake Paul boxing is about like Tebow playing baseball, in which the the person's ability like. They're, they're not totally incompetent at it, but the only reason they're being paid attention to... Like, Jake Paul is not a... He's not even a semi-pro boxer. Like, if no. you put him in there with an actual boxer, he'll lose. He'll get the brake speed off of him. He's fighting lighter guys from a different discipline. And also, I mean... Felt like there were punches to be had that were yeah, not Yeah, man, I, st- I, I, I think it was fixed. I, I, I think it was fixed. I would not I, disagree. If you're if you're Tyron Woodley and you, those last two rounds, you know I'm not going to lose unless I knock him out. I'm not going to lose, and he hasn't really hurt me at any point in this fight. I think you're going to let it go more than Tyron Woodley did. 
But that's just me. Paul, what's your flag? I am going, well, honorable mention flag raised for Dave Wyman complaining about referees down the stretch in the preseason game. I loved it. He, like, cut himself off at a moment, but I liked it because the game was taking too long, and all of a sudden the referees decided to show up in the third quarter. Come on. But I am throwing a flag at Nebraska football. How have you become this? How? I mean, Nebraska has money. They have an incredibly loyal fan base. They have history. And they have faded so quickly into the night. Maybe it's just difficult to recruit people that come to Nebraska without dropping big bags of cash in front of them like might have been happening in the mid-90s, Danny. But, I mean, from the... 70s, 80s, 90s, this was one of the top programs in college football every single year. And now, with Scott Frost as head coach, he's got like a 375 winning percentage. They haven't had a coach this poor since the 60s. And they were talking all that game last year. We'll play anyone at any time on any country, any continent. And they can't even beat Illinois, who's is the one team in the Big Ten that you know every single year is going to stink outside of Rutgers. It's hilarious. I enjoyed it. I like watching it. I like watching people wring their hands over once great powers who have fallen by the wayside. Frost was a national champion head coach with Central Florida. Come yep. on. You got to deliver. Going home isn't always easy. No, it's not. That is going to do it for us. We want to thank Brock Heward for joining us today for Blue 42, the Professor John Clayton for the morning drive. We've got roster cuts coming up tomorrow as the Seattle Seahawks finalize their 53-man roster. Maura Dooley keeps everything on the straight and narrow for us, and he is Paul Gallant. And yeah, he'll, he'll, he'll take those Cornhuskers to the woodshed. And he is Danny O'Neill, and he believes the fix was in. Honestly, I, I, I can get behind that. That's for sure. So long. Farewell. You'll hear Danny and I tomorrow. And my question for today's show between D. Eskridge, Daryl Taylor, Marquise Blair, and Alex Collins, who impressed the most for the Seahawks Saturday night? You get to answer that next on the most interactive sports talk show in Seattle. Don't go anywhere.